We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark 5. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Seats. Please join me in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you know every single one of us, that you know us better than we know ourselves, and that no one is here today by accident. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you not only know us, but that you desire to be known by us, that you want us to know your heart 
that you want us to know your goodness, that you want us to know the work, the great work that you have done in Jesus to save us, to save us from our brokenness, to save us from our guilt, to save us from our shame, to save us from our sin. And Lord, to give us a bright future that we never dreamed that we could ever have, a hope that cannot die. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet every single one of us where we are. Lord, that you would bring faith where there is no faith, that you would bring comfort where there is suffering. Lord, that you would bring peace where there is a storm of anxiety brewing inside of us. Lord, that you would speak to us in a powerful way, uh, that we would hear your voice here this morning and be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. We are continuing through our sermon series, through the Gospel of Mark, which we are calling The Way of Jesus. And we're calling this sermon series The Way of Jesus for a number of reasons. We've been talking about how Christianity creates such a deep transformation in the life of every person who puts their faith in Jesus that it creates a new way. And when you, when you look at the New Testament, the early Christians were actually not Christians. They were called the way because they lived in such a different way. They, 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 they were different in the way that they loved. They were different in the way that they received and gave forgiveness. They were different in the way that they experienced and created community. They were different in the way that they lived with purpose. And they were different in the way that they suffered. The United States is also different in the way that we suffer. Uh, in 2010, a study found that uh, Americans spend $635 billion a year on pain relief. And Dr. Paul Brand, who is actually a pain specialist, had this to say about the way that Americans deal with pain. He wrote that patients in America lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Uh, Dr. Brand is saying that we have a lot of resources for pain relief in our country, but we have few resources for actually accepting the reality of pain in our lives. We, we know how to manage our pain. We don't know how to live with our pain. We don't know how to heal in the midst of our pain. Uh, and today's passage is going to show us a better way to deal with pain. And it's through the story of two very unlikely people. It's hard to imagine two people who are more different. We're introduced on one hand to a, a person who is respected and wealthy. And on the other hand, we're introduced to someone who is penniless and alone. They are completely different in their situation. They're actually very different in the type of pain and suffering that they're dealing with. But what they have in common is that they are equally lost, they're equally broken, and they are equally desperate, and they are actually also equally loved 
by Jesus, and they're equally transformed by Jesus. So today we're going to break down this passage, and we're going to look at three things to see how Jesus meets us in our pain and transforms it and redeems it. Number one, we're going to look at how Jesus heals through desperation. Number two, we're going to look at how Jesus heals in relationship. And finally, number three, we're going to look at how Jesus heals for eternity. So let's look at the first part of this passage and how Jesus heals through desperation. The beginning of this passage, we're introduced to a father named Jairus. Jairus was desperate because his daughter was dying. In the original New Testament Greek, it actually says that his daughter was at death's door. Uh, It could be any moment. He had no idea how much longer she would be able to hold on. And we're also told that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, and that may not mean a lot to us, but it would have meant a lot to the original audience. A synagogue ruler was not like a priest or a rabbi. A synagogue ruler was the well-respected, mature, spiritual leader in the community who was wealthy, who paid to help build the synagogue, who helped pick the rabbis who would speak and teach at the synagogue, who actually would choose the scriptures that were read every Sabbath for worship at the synagogue, and so synagogue rulers were actually very influential. They were social, economic, and spiritual leaders, the leaders behind the priests and the rabbis. They were the ones that donated the large sums of money. They were the ones that everybody looked up to. There's actually a really funny saying in the Talmud, which is a collection of ancient rabbi teachings. And in the Talmud, it says, let a man always sell all he has and marry, the daughter, uh, and marry the daughter of a scholar. If he does not find the daughter of a scholar, let him marry the daughter of the great men of the generation. If he does not find the daughter of the great men of the generation, let him marry the daughter of a head of a synagogue. So the, the, the daughter of the head of the synagogue is just under the great men of the generation, right? Not great enough to make times 100 most influential people, maybe like 101 or 150. Jairus was a big deal. And it's actually very unusual that he's falling at the feet of Jesus, a carpenter, a rabbi, but, but also a peculiar rabbi, an unconventional, unorthodox rabbi, a rabbi that people were not really sure about. Jairus probably never fell at the feet of anyone ever before. And it's interesting that this is the first time that we hear about Jairus, because Jairus was the synagogue ruler in the city of Capernaum. And if you've been following this sermon series, you know that Capernaum was actually Jesus' adopted home. This was where Jesus, this is where Peter and Andrew, his disciples, lived. This was, Jesus actually preached, and in Mark chapter 1, Jesus actually preached at the synagogue in Capernaum. This was the city where there was that paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof by his friends. That it's, it's possible that the home where that actually happened was Jesus' house. 
And so Jairus most certainly knew Jesus. He had witnessed maybe some of his miracles, and if he didn't witness them himself, he heard about the miracles that Jesus was performing in the city. So why haven't we heard from him before? Why is it that now he's falling at Jesus' feet? It's because he's feeling desperate in a way that he never felt before. His daughter was at death's door, and he did not know how long she would be able to hold on. Uh, He had worked so hard to build a bright future for his daughter, but now all of that was about to come to nothing. And so when Jesus returned to Capernaum, he had been away, a great crowd assembled to meet him at the shore as he came across the Sea of Galilee. And Jairus, when he heard that Jesus was back, ran to Jesus and fell at his feet and begged over and over again, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she would be healed and lived. Some of you don't understand why you need God this morning. But at some point, everyone is going to have a daughter lying in bed at death's door. And maybe it's not a daughter, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's you. Sooner or later, every single one of us in this room is going to find ourselves utterly powerless. We're going to find that none of our resources, none of our accomplishments, none of our, none of our righteousness, none of the good things that we have done are going to be able to save us from our, de- our desperation. Nothing we do will be able to take that desperation away. And maybe that's why some of you are here this morning. Maybe you are here because hard things have happened in your life, and none of the things that you thought you could rely on and count on have helped. And you're wondering if it's possible that any of these things can be true, that there's actually a God, a real and true and living God, who can meet you and help you and heal you in your desperation. And if that's you, I would love to talk to you after this service or during the week. The incredible claim of Christianity is that desperation is actually not something that we need to avoid, but desperation is actually the only way to meet God and to know God. Throughout the Bible, people who think they have it all together never understand who Jesus is or why he came or why he did what he did. Jesus was totally misunderstood by people who felt comfortable, who did not have great needs. But when people came to Jesus desperate, these are the people who came to know Jesus most intimately. Every other religion says, if you follow its teaching, you will be able to avoid being desperate. 
Christianity actually says, the more you come to know Jesus, the more you will understand your need for him, the more desperate you will feel, and yet, at the very same time, the more you will find his power working in your life to heal you and to make you whole in ways that you never dreamed possible. See, faith in Jesus doesn't say, I can do this, I can do better, I can be better. Faith in Jesus says, I cannot do this. Lord, have mercy on me, help me, save me. I cannot save myself, I cannot help myself. I need a savior, I need grace, I need mercy. I need you, I need the healing of Jesus. Why would anybody wanna do that? Why would anybody want to feel desperate for anything? Well, it's because when you are desperate for God, when you are desperate for Jesus, he gives you more than just healing. He gives you relationship. And this is what we're gonna see in the second part of today's passage, that the healing of Jesus happens in relationship. When Jesus saw Jairus' desperation, he didn't blink. Jesus didn't hesitate. He went with him to Jairus' home, and the large crowd that had assembled followed them. They were excited. They, they, they suspected they were about to see something incredible, something amazing, another miracle. But there was someone in this crowd who was not there to see a miracle. There was someone in the crowd who needed her very own miracle. There was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years the same number of years that Jairus' daughter was alive. And we don't know her name, we don't know what she did for a living, we don't know where she lived, where she came from, all we know is that one day, she started menstruating and she never stopped for 12 years. And, and the, the woman is so different from Jairus. The woman does not fall at Jesus' feet, not at first. Her plan is to hide in the crowd, to sneak up behind Jesus. And in verse eight, she, 28, she tells herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Which, by the way, is not a biblical teaching. This is actually just superstition. Uh, when Alexander the Great walked in crowds, people actually swarmed him and tried to touch him, hoping that the aura of his power would rub off on them. This is actually not a Christian belief. She came with this superstitious belief that just touching Jesus would make her well, and she snuck up behind him and reached just to touch his cloak. And in verse 29, we see that her bleeding immediately stopped. In the Greek, it says that her bleeding dried up. At that moment, the woman doesn't cry for joy. She doesn't start praising God. She doesn't start giving thanks. She doesn't go to Jesus to even say thank you. She actually tries to slip away unannounced. Why? Why was this woman, this poor woman, so secretive? Yes, she was suffering. Yes, she had a hard life. But why, why was she so secretive? Well, it's because according to the Old Testament law, and you can read about this in Leviticus 15, uh, uh, her bleeding actually made her unclean. 
And you might think that's really strange. There's a lots of strange ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. And the idea, the logic behind some of these laws is that anything that reminds us and points to the brokenness and our sinfulness, anything that points to death and suffering is unclean. And so her bleeding was a sign of being unclean, ceremonially unclean. And what that meant is that anybody that touched this woman would also become unclean. This woman was not permitted to go to the temple to worship. This woman was not permitted to hold anybody's hand, to, to give or receive a hug. So the, 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 the taste of isolation that so many of us experience in the pandemic, this woman lived for 12 years. It had been 12 years since she'd been able to sit at a table and eat a meal with friends or family. It had been 12 years, because actually, not only would you be unclean if you touched her, but if you touched something that she touched, you would also become unclean. So she was utterly alone, utterly isolated, and if anybody knew her condition, she would have not been permitted to be there, even in the crowd. And do you realize what happened when she touched the cloak of Jesus? When she touched Jesus' clothes, she was actually making Jesus unclean. How could she face him? How could she tell him, you healed me, but as a consequence, I've made you unclean. You will have to isolate like I have isolated. You will not be able to go to this little girl and heal her. And so she tried to slip away unnoticed, secretively, to steal away her little miracle and to go in peace. But Jesus did not let her. Can you imagine her surprise in verse 30 when Jesus asked, who touched my clothes? Why did Jesus say that? Earlier in Mark, we've seen Jesus read people's minds. Did Jesus really not know who touched him? who was healed by his power, who touched me? Jesus did not say this for his own benefit. He said this for her benefit. He wanted to make sure that this woman did not leave merely with healing. She, he wanted to make sure that she would leave with relationship. One commentator puts it this way. He says, in the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is simply getting our needs, is, is not simply getting our needs met. It's being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. Jesus has no category for anonymous blessing. No category for I need your power, but I don't need you. I don't need you to know me. I don't need, I don't need to know you. Everything that Jesus does in the, is in the context of relationship. And everyone else in the crowd was completely lost. Maybe most of all, Jesus' own disciples. And then although Jairus doesn't say it, of course, Jairus had to be lost. The disciples ask, who touched me? Who touched me? You see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, who touched me? The disciples are saying, Jesus, the crowd, everybody is touching you. 
What do you mean who touched you? Don't you remember where we're going? Why have you stopped? Why are you looking for someone who touched you? Don't you remember the synagogue ruler's daughter? Don't you remember that she's dying? She's at death's door. There's not a moment to to spare. There's a daughter to save. How are we going to get there in time if you're standing here looking for someone who touched you? And the woman who cannot stand it comes out and emerges from the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet. And do you hear what Jesus says to her? The very first word is daughter. And Jesus is saying, you are a daughter too. There, you are a daughter, a daughter of God, a daughter of the Most High, And there is someone in heaven who cannot bear to watch you suffer, who will not spare a moment to come to your aid, to heal you and to meet you in your anguish. I know that you felt alone for 12 years, but you are not alone now. Daughter, I see you. Daughter, I love you. And I will take all the time I need to make you feel known, to make you know that you are a dearly loved daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus refused to let the woman walk away quietly as if she had done something wrong. He he wasn't worried about being made unclean by her. He was worried about losing the opportunity for relationship with her, and so he pursued her and brought her into his family as his daughter. When you're hurting, the last thing you want to feel is desperate. You don't want to feel alone. And maybe maybe you're just desperate enough for God to, to touch and run. Maybe some of you this morning are hurting and you've got you've got some real big hurt in your life and you wish that you could just touch God and he would heal you and that you could go on with your life. But don't you see what Jesus wants is more than just healing. Every miracle in God's kingdom leads to meeting. He wants to give you more than just healing for the moment. He wants to give you a relationship that will heal you and stay with you and walk with you all the days of your life. So how can you know? How can you know that this can be true? How do you know that if you put your faith in Jesus that healing will come especially when the pain is still so real. And this brings us to the last thing I want to look at with you tonight, uh, this morning, is that, that, that Jesus heals us for eternity. But while Jesus and the woman were still talking, someone came from Jairus' home to tell them that his daughter had died. And listen to what they say in verse 35. The, the messenger says, why bother the teacher anymore? Do you hear what the messenger's saying? It's like, don't bother Jesus anymore. Like, he can't help you. She's dead. The, miracle, the, the, the window of opportunity for miracle has passed. And so let the teacher go. The, the, the messenger actually sees Jesus in the exactly same way that the bleeding woman saw him. The, 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 the messenger saw no value in relationship with Jesus except for momentary pain relief. 
What's the point of bringing him to your home if he's not going to take away your hurt? Your daughter is dead. Let the teacher go. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 36. Jesus, overhearing them, says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus is saying, trust me. I know you don't understand what's happening. I know you don't understand why I spent so much time talking to this woman. I know you don't understand why your daughter died. I, don't know, I know you don't understand why I let her die. But trust me. Don't put your faith in the miracle. Put your faith in me. Put your faith in relationship with me. Let me go home with you, and I promise it's going to get better, and you're going to experience a healing that you never dreamed possible. And so they, they, they continued. They arrived at Jairus' home, and when they arrived at his home, there, was, there were people crying and wailing loudly. And in verse 38, Jesus goes up to the mourners, and he says, why all the commotion and wailing? Which is not something I would ever say to somebody who is hurting can you imagine if you had a death in your family and I visited you and said, what's the big deal? Cheer up, right? Then Jesus goes on to say, the child is not dead but asleep. And at this point, the crowd cannot take it. Now, to give you a little bit of context about the crowd, why are there so many people already, the moment she has died, there at the house, mourning and wailing? Well, these were actually professional mourners which was the custom in the ancient Near East at this time. People would hire professionals, pro-mourners, to come and mourn. And in fact, uh, Rabbi Judah wrote that even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. And Jairus was not poor. He was very wealthy, he was well-respected, and so there was a large group of professional mourners waiting here. And these people were pros. They had been to many funerals, and they knew what a dead 12-year-old looked like. And when Jesus said she's sleeping, it sounded laughable to them. It sounded ridiculous. They knew that dead little girls don't wake up. This is what Jairus was afraid of. Why did the mornings laugh? Why was Jairus afraid? They were afraid because they both believed it was too late. Death has a finality to it. Death is the reason we think that our days are numbered. Death is what makes separation unbearable from our loved ones. Death is final, there is no coming back from death. And they thought, they thought their best hope was that Jesus got there in time to heal. They never imagined that there could actually be a resurrection. And the thing is, all healing this side of heaven is actually just pain relief. It's glorified aspirin. Because the reality is that nothing that we experience, no healing that we are able to experience this side of heaven will save us from death, from the finality of death, the unbearable separation of death. See, the woman was healed, but one day she would die. 
And we're about to see something incredible. We're about to see a resurrection. This 12-year-old girl is going to wake up from death as if she were waking up from a nap. But even she would die again. See, every sort of healing we receive, this side of heaven is imperfect. It's pain relief. It's momentary. The lasting cure that every single one of us is looking for is resurrection. And that's what Jesus performs here in this passage. He chases all the mourners out. He takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He takes the parents and he goes to the little girl And he's so tender with her. He says, Talitha kun, Talitha, which means little girl, honey, sweetie, sweetheart, wake up, get up, wake up. Have you ever ever woken up a two-year-old that was sleeping? You don't yell, get up, get up. You know, that's what what I do with my teenagers. (laughs) But But you're gentle, honey, it's time to wake up. It's time, nap time's over. You need, to, you need to eat something. Let's, let's play. Let's eat. He's gentle with her. He says, Talitha kun, little girl, I say to you, get up, get up, honey. And just like a child waking up from a deep and satisfying nap, this little girl wakes up. Death is no more than, a, than like waking up for a nap in the presence of Jesus. And when everybody in the room saw this, Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the little girl's parents, they were astonished. The Greek actually says that they were ecstatic. They were blown away. There was electricity in the room. And all the parents wanted to do was to go out and tell everybody what happened. To tell all those professional mourners that were laughing that their little girl who had been dead is now alive. And isn't it strange that Jesus tells them not to? He says, don't do that. Don't tell anybody about what happened here. Don't let anyone know what happened. Why is he saying that? Well, obviously, Jesus did not mean don't ever tell anyone ever because we would not have this story in the Bible. Jesus is saying don't tell anyone yet. Because this resurrection will not make any sense to people until there is another and final resurrection. He is saying that if if you tell people now about what I did, people are just going to come to me with all their dead people and they're going to think the answer is for me to sit with them, but I am actually doing something greater and more powerful. I am going to do something that will lead to the resurrection of the world. I am going to, all who who know me and trust in me will not die, and even though they die, they will yet live. All who trust in me will come to see that I'm making all things new. Jesus was saying this is not the time yet. A time would come when death would be defeated once and for all, and everything would make sense, but it was not that time yet. You know what's so interesting about this miracle is that touching dead people also made you unclean. And so this woman who was bleeding touched Jesus. Jesus took the little girl by the hand and helped her get up, and she made him unclean. 
And that was all just a sign, a hint, a preview of how Jesus would ultimately take not only our uncleanness, but all our sin, all our brokenness, all our guilt, all our shame on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would die on a cross. He would be buried in the grave. And three days later, he would rise again, all to defeat death once and for all, to give us an eternal healing, not a healing with a time limit, not a healing that would one day fade away so that we need more healing, a definitive once and for all forever healing so that one day we can wake up into a world where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. And we will hear the voice of our Father and our Savior calling out, daughter, son, wake up. Wake up. Your suffering is over. Your pain is in the past. I have come to make all things new. You realize what this means. It means that there is a healing available to you even when it seems to not have come yet. It means that even if you are praying for healing and healing hasn't come, even if you are praying for a reconciled relationship and that person is still unwilling to forgive you, even if you are praying that God would, would take away the, 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 the prison of addiction and you, you keep relapsing. Even if you put your hope in God, but you backslide and you wander away, that there is hope, that there is healing for you in the midst of the desperation, in the midst of the struggle. Because the source of your healing is not in your circumstance or in your moment, your, your, your your assurance of your healing comes from the definitive work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. I love the way that Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban ends, it, in both the book and the movie. And without spoiling it too much, basically what happens at the end of this book and movie is that Harry Potter has access to the special magic which helps him understand what's going to happen in the, past, in the future. And in the future, he sees that he's able to cast this spell that no one at his skill level and his age should be able to, to, to cast. A spell that, that defeats overpowering evil, powerful magical forces. And he's able to do it. And when he does it, he says, I, he, he says, I know I could do it this time because I'd already done it. Does it make sense? See, this is, this is how resurrection works. The resurrection of Jesus is a special sort of magic that helps you look into the future so that no matter what is happening in your life right now, even if you are hurting and you're not sure how much longer you could hold on, you can know that your story will end in glory and it will end in joy and it will end in wholeness, and everything sad in your life will become untrue. And that is what this table represents. This table represents that the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you 
is the same body and blood of the Jesus that is risen from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection. And because he rose, all who trust in him will also rise again. And if you have never known that hope in your life, you can know it today. And I would love to talk to you after the service to process these things with you or during the week. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, It is such a mystery to us, Lord, that you would enter our suffering, that you would enter everything that is dirty and unclean and unspeakable about our lives, that you would enter our guilt and our shame, and that you would take these things upon yourself. And you did this in Jesus, that he he who knew no sin would become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we thank you, Lord, that in this hope that that not only death has been defeated, but our unbelief has been defeated and our brokenness has been defeated. And that there is a, a, a source of power and resilience and hope even in the midst of all the struggles and all the battles that we're fighting here this morning. And so, God, we pray that you would use this table to nourish us. And for those who will not receive today, God, we pray that you would draw near to them and that they would hear your voice calling out to them, you are my daughter too, you are my son too, and that they would know the loving invitation of their Redeemer maybe for the first time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.